Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Real Joey Boats podcast. I'm a two-time brain cancer survivor, a combat veteran. I survived alcoholism, depression, suicide, and beat the demons where they live. I'm here to help you own up as I did so you can face any adversity in your life and win. Uh, today, I got a, another special guest on, my friend Gordon Sonberg. He is uh, he's a fellow gray shirt with Team Rubicon as me. He got started in disaster response back in 88. And uh, full-time after Katrina in 2005, uh, he started a program called the Veterans Green Bus. And he's going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, all right, folks, so buckle up. Gordon, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, my friend. Awesome. Good to be with you. Yeah, Good dude. Good to be above ground. <laughs> yeah, right? Man, it's uh, definitely crazy times for sure. I mean, it's sunny here. I can look out my back window, so there's that. Uh, I got cloudy and 25 degrees here in Detroit. Uh, around the same, about 30 degrees. So 30 degrees and sunny before the... The cold hits, but you guys are always generally colder than we are. I'm only five hours south of you, so. You got hit with all that snow, I guess, huh? Yeah, we did. We got a little bit of snow. I think we're supposed to get some more here within the next few days. Yeah, good news coming. The veteran's green bus is about to hit the road. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. Tell me all about it. All right, so uh, let's go with some background. So... 2005 is when we started the Veterans Green Bus Project. We were doing uh, veterans uh, projects and Katrina hit, and so we went to New Orleans with our bus and started doing uh, team cell work, clean up muck and guts, that sort of thing. We were the first ones in. As far as volunteers go, we were there like still one-way traffic coming out of New Orleans, so it was maybe 24 hours after the storm left. Anyhow, we also had satellite internet on our bus, so we were blogging about what we were doing while we were there and raised a bunch of money and ended up spending five years doing Katrina work and doing it green. So we started the Veterans Green Bus Project in response to Hurricane Katrina and we started recycling this cooking oil from the French Quarter restaurants and making our own biodiesel in our camp out in Slide L. And we fueled our tractor, our truck, and heavy equipment to do demolition and cleanups in the Lower Ninth Ward for a couple of years. Ran a tractor in there to mow lawns for folks that uh, were getting fined for not uh, mowing their lawns and all their house miles in a pile down the river on the levee wall. They said he wanted the profit, so we decided uh, we would prevent them from getting it by mowing the lawns for a year or so. And then Brad Pitt came in with the Make It Right project and started building green homes. And we started helping him with the uh, lot prep work for that. And then we got hit with two hurricanes, Gustav and Ike. They were two weeks apart. And my biodiesel plant was on a bayou with no levee. So we were in danger of creating we had to pull up space and refuel and reorganize our effort. And that's right when Obama got into office and uh, Bill Biden started the, our stimulus funds for the stimulus package 
And because of what I was doing down in New Orleans for four years by then, they discouraged me to move to Colorado to help start the Veterans Green Jobs Project with our stimulus funds working with the governor's energy office. So we moved out of uh, Louisiana, moved to Colorado with the bus. We got a first cohort of 17 vets to take them out camping and teach them how to do uh, weatherization work and work with the Forest Service doing trail work. And we built a log cabin for the Forest Service in the Carson National Forest in the Valley Vidal. And then uh, ramped up with the um, second round of our stimulus funds and went from 17 to 100 vets weatherizing low-income homes for Denver, Jefferson County, and the entire Alamosa Valley, which is nine counties. The valley's 200 miles long, and it's uh, 8,500 feet in elevation, so the coldest place in the country, and no building code to weatherize the homes. So we had to work that out for us, but we knocked it out. We uh, weatherized 200 homes the first year, 1200 homes the second year and then the third year uh funding was cut by the tea party congress and i was left with 100 pin slips to hand out so i took the first one and i looked around the country and asked myself what was screwed up like new orleans and cold like denver and came up with detroit <laughs> being a disaster Came, you know, it's a disaster undeclared. You know, the blight in Detroit's the scale of a hurricane. Nobody ever came to clean it up like after Katrina, and nobody in a hurry to come back. So it looked like a good training ground to restart the Veterans Green Jobs Program, but also incorporate disaster response training with that and with the expansion of Team Rubicon's. Uh, Training program. We partnered with them as soon as we got to Detroit. They called us to use our bus to respond to Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and we set up the Ford operating base in, in Rockaway, helped them uh, roll out their first national all hands on deck response. Yep. And then came back after a tour around the country, showing how the bus worked on. Doing service projects around the country, we came back to Detroit and partnered with Detroit Blightbusters, a uh, local nonprofit that's been doing cleanup here in Detroit for the last 32 years, and started rolling out our green jobs training, but using blight removal and using the bus and my Dodge uh, 3500. Converted to run on grease to roll out a green light removal disaster response training program using the Bloody Detroit and the volunteers at Plate Busters to do that. And then we brought in Team Rubicon members local and regionally to uh, do service projects. And, and that blew up to the Mobex Motor City program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that got bigger. And for the last two and a half years, I've been kind of licking my wounds since uh, funding for nonprofits evaporated when the new 
administration came in and I've been essentially hibernating for the last year with COVID, doing disaster responses with uh, Jim Rubicon. Yeah. As far as the, you know, the work here is pretty much stopped. Sad. Yeah, that's the general thing everywhere is, you know, uh, down here, it's like I, I did a lot of stuff with Toolbank, and they've kind of scaled back on their their work. And I know with Team Rubicon doing the only stuff that they're doing, um, you know, stuff has really scaled back for me. So I've been kind of, you know, drawn inward myself. Uh, and, you know, I haven't been able to do a lot of service things, which is hard for me because it's what I dedicated my life to years ago. And I haven't been able to serve as much as I like because of this. So I completely are, you know, we're in that same boat almost. Yeah. So uh, long and short of it, you know, what do you do with all this time (laughs) (laughs) with COVID and with no volunteers, there's, you know, we're not getting big groups together to go take care of stuff. So it falls back to the original idea that I had back in 2005 with a squad level a handful of people doing stuff but keeping them isolated so my model for using the bus to do disaster response or service projects becomes you know more valid now that we can't respond in large groups yeah right so you know if we're self-contained being able to cook our own food, take a shower, do laundry, and power up, refuel, and refuel, we really don't need outside support, right? Yeah. Or the operating base could be a big bunch of tents and a bunch of refrigerator trucks and a bunch of people, or it could be just a mobile home with a handful of guys who know what to do and self-contained. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and you get a bunch of those people with with their own ability to uh, their own personal forward operating base, and you can still do a whole lot of work, but just keep everybody self-contained in their own group. Yeah. I, I think that was the, the what I saw from the disaster response in Sandy. I mean, not Sandy. I get them all mixed up now. <laughs> Um, this last summer down in down in Louisiana, we were doing a COVID disaster response. So we were bunked up, but six feet apart. We're eating in a common room. Luckily, we you know did all the protocols to avoid that, avoid getting exposed. But it really slowed down the process because of so many people having to share so many resources. Yeah. Yeah. And so I came to the conclusion that if I had come down with my bus, my own chainsaw gear, and my own crew of four guys, we could stay on the job for a month. Not two weeks. Yeah, heck yeah. Right? Yeah. Got our own laundry, take breaks, whatever. Not making it, uh, you know, we wouldn't be risking anything by staying longer if we could stay self-contained and isolated from everybody else and just bring in the resource. Yep, yep, I get it. 
And that's safer. That's safer than all the rest. Yeah, I think but, it is too. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's the that's the takeaway is just trying to be safe and trying to do things. And I didn't go down to Louisiana. I, um, you know, I wasn't like worried or anything, but I just didn't. I just didn't go, and was trying to figure out, man, how how are they going to do it with all this COVID stuff? Because I know at the beginning of the pandemic, I went down to Tennessee. And um, it started to get kind of weird then, so I can't imagine like how weird it is now doing something like that. Yeah, it, it was, well, it's like full time mop gear. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're in mop four all the time. You, yeah, you're never no. out of the disaster. You're never out of the risk. No, never. There's out a of lot the risk of all. a lot of stressors that you know. If I was in the unstable psychological space those things would have been compounding and i think that's another you know risk assessment you got to take when you're dealing with your own personal issues when you respond and then throw covid on top of that all this stuff you really got to check yourself before you sign up yeah that's for sure and i know that even normal at home it's created new and different stressors for people uh, you know, like, hey, I'm always stuck in the house. I love my wife to death, but we've, we've kind of, you know, been at home more and we're always around each other. You know, breaks are good. It's, it's just as important to be apart as it is to be together. So you have those new stressors and it, uh, trying to figure it all out. And, um, you know, I've only been married once before and that didn't work out too good. So I'm trying to do things differently here. <laughs> I don't have any advice for you on that. I'm a complete failure on the relationship. Well, so far, However, so far, I'm doing good. I think. Excellent. I'm happy for you, brother. Um, you know, I think it was kept me sane the last year without having anything, anybody to to tell what to do, yeah. <laughs> volunteer wise, or get stuff done. The community garden has been my uh, meditation and activity you know, doing community garden. Outdoors, you know, there's a lot of work to do, but it's not all that, it's not stressful. Yeah. And it's rewarding, that, you know, it's really rewarding, especially when you grow it yourself. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, my garden totally failed this past uh, season. I think the only thing I got out of it was like a few heads of cabbage and some broccoli. Uh, not, I don't, not sure. Like the soil's kind of thick. It's kind of clay, but like everything else in the Midwest, just a huge bed of clay. So just getting the right nutrients and the right balance. So, but I think I know what I got to do this summer. Oh, oh, I had a huge problem with bugs last summer. That was it. And with the cicadas coming back. Oh boy. Um, big time this year. Yep. But I'm. Um, I got two fireplaces, so I'm putting all the fire ash in the in the garden, and that everybody tells me that's a good thing to do. So, yeah, well, I've been lucky. I've been working because of Blightbusters. We got some connections to people that actually know what they're doing. So the community gardens uh, got a partner in uh, uh, Maria Lagacha from uh, Argentina. She's a master gardener from uh, Michigan. So she's taught me how to do all the soil prep, and she does all the starts in her 
hothouse in the beginning of the year to get the plants going. And then we plant them together and then I'm, I take care of all the weeds and the watering and she comes by once a week and does the training with other community members and volunteers and how to take care of the garden and how to do the crop rotations and all that. And for the last two years, I've learned a lot from her. Uh, I don't think I could pull off or, you know, what we've done without, um, without her help. That's for sure. And I basically show up, make sure it's watered and, and, and weeded and not messed with. And we just take, make sure, uh, it's been a real slow motion success, but really has turned the corner around in terms of our community is, you know, that little part of the neighborhood. Yeah, that's excellent. Is that, that's in the, is that in the same neighborhood that we did um, Mobex in? Yeah, yeah, it's all in Brightmore, you know, a yeah. uh, five mile square area. Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to follow the progress of that since we were up there, and it, I mean... Definitely looks like it's come a long way. Well, our corner should have. When, when we did the Mobex, uh, the Myers is just getting open. No, it's open. We've got a new Myers on our corner. Oh, yeah. Uh, the city's put in $30 million in uh, streetscape uh, cleanup, repaving, new sidewalks on Grand River and Lasher on the corner. Fisher Foundations uh, and the platform. Uh, redevelopment group is uh, restoring the buildings on the corner. So we're, we're getting a lot of uh, infrastructure redevelopment, but still no jobs yet. Yeah. And no new businesses, obviously, but buildings are getting repaired. <laughs> well, I think that's that's probably how it would start, right? Is the buildings get repaired and uh, the businesses will follow suit, hopefully. Well, I, I mean, there, there was no place to do business before or new in the corner it's live work so you could have a artist studio downstairs in your living space upstairs yeah so they're, they've made a big investment in the cultural uh interests of the community instead of looking for chain restaurants or anything like that the nonprofit and for-profit development group has in such a way that local uh, businesses occupy those spaces. So it's going to be slow, but it'll be a local redevelopment. Yeah, and that that's the important part is one thing that I think some people, not everybody, are finding out that nowadays are that the, the chain businesses or the big businesses, they're going to survive no matter what. It's the small businesses that need the help. And it's the small businesses that feed the communities, that grow the communities. It's not the big ones. It's not your Burger Kings. It's it's not. It's like your Mung Fungo restaurants that uh, my neighbor's kid just started. You know, the other day. That's the kind of businesses that that keep you going. Uh, yeah, all the other businesses pull money out of the community. They don't put money in. It's true. I mean, you pay twelve dollars for a. a, a a meal at McDonald's if you're hungry, right? Yeah. But the guy that made it for you is getting, you know, seven fifty an hour. Yeah, he's getting pennies. Right. And that twelve bucks went somewhere else, the corporate, everywhere else, and he got a couple of pennies. That money doesn't stay in the community, but if the guy flipping the burger owns the restaurant, all the money stays there. 
that's basically what it boils down to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I've definitely switched my mo in the last few years to to like going to those big businesses and and doing my business there because I know my money wasn't staying within the community. And I now it's all like small businesses and and uh, small farmers that I get all my food from because I know all my money staying with them. Yep. It's, well, we're back to depression era kind of survival factor. Now. At least here in Detroit, it's a mess. Yeah, I don't. People around here, I think that there needs to be more change to realization that small businesses are are the thing that's keeping our communities alive. Not these big businesses, not the, not the big burger joints, not places like Target. That ain't happening, man. Those places are not doing shit for the community. Yeah, they might have like, uh, they might have like volunteer things come out every once in a while, like, but it's not helping. They're not helping anything. It's all marketing. It's not motivating. Yeah, it, it's so true. It's so true. I try not, try not to get too caught up in all the the who what where and why of it I, uh, it's getting to the point where i just want to get shit done COVID thing has really slowed me down in terms of re getting the bus rebuilt and on the road kept busy as i can but you know well it's may of coming up three years now that the bus your first bus burned to the ground took me a year to find and replace it Got it replaced a year ago, paid for. Took another six months to get it accident damaged. Why I got it so cheap. Took another six months to get that fixed. And with COVID, getting the service done on it to get it on the road is now also slowing things down. We're about a month away from hitting the road with it. That's good. I mean, that is really good. My stress level is going to go way down once I'm back on miss you know that what happened here in Detroit you know I've been here I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in the country since I've lived in the United States yeah Detroit is you know growing up it lived in different towns maybe put me in different places got married moved around I've never lived anywhere longer than I lived in Detroit, and I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sick of Detroit. I'm just sick of being in one place for so long. Yeah, you know, that's... You know, I, I, I've been on the road since I was four, you know. I came to the United States in the back of a Volkswagen Beetle, uh, and my road trip really hasn't stopped, and I'm getting kind of uh, antsy for some uh, putting some uh, tarmac behind me. Dude, I definitely understand that. I, I'm not a rambling man so much as you are, uh, but I definitely like to travel, and I haven't been doing that. Last place I was was Iowa, and I was only there for a couple days, and I chainsawed that entire time. So, uh, yeah, dude, I'm ready to go somewhere. <laughs> well, I think everybody's, you know, obviously got got the, uh, uh, the Paw Blues. Yeah. The, uh, you still run into the same thing, you know, traveling around during COVID doesn't sound like a good idea. You're just going into one hot zone into another and you don't know anybody. So that's kind of sketchy. But again, being on the bus and being 
you know, self-contained. I'm thinking between disasters, doing service projects in Fort and National Park. So I could travel around do service projects, stay isolated, enjoy nature, and stay and get stuff done, but then sign up for TR projects to get the real estate done. And use the travel time in between to decompress and just enjoy life. Detroit went through a winter. I can't, there's no garden to do. I can't do blight. There's no volunteers. I've basically been hibernating now for four months. I could have been running the bus throughout the South doing projects. Yep. So that's the plan. April 1st, I plan on getting on the bus in Elsinore, California, and uh, fundraiser with Jordan Brady and the comics in LA. And going to San Diego to uh, Balboa Naval Hospital to kick off the tour. Yeah. I think the uh, first stop will be Arizona for solar panels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be awesome. And then up to Washington State to convert it to run on grease like the old bus. Heck yeah, man. And, uh, then you'll be ready to roll anywhere in the country and not pay for fuel. <laughs> there you go. You'd stop at any uh, stop at any joint and uh, get your fuel there instead of paying, gosh knows what gas prices is going to be, or whatever it's oh, going to be wherever you go. LA, it's six dollars a gallon for diesel. Jeez, old Pete. It's uh, free for grease. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way well, to go, right there. That's not enti- that's not entirely true. Full disclosure. Uh, we're going to take this another step further than we did with the, the first Veterans Green Bus. You know, on that one, we had four tanks to collect the used cooking oil. Two of them had centrifuges on it to clean out the dirty stuff. Yeah. And then the other two had five micron filters and water traps to make sure it was clean before it got to the engine. That allowed us to collect oil from restaurants and just keep driving. Well, we're going to have a new, new twist to this, this this time. I've been talking to Michael Bowman, the guy that wrote the hemp law. Uh, the farm, you know, he got the hemp started nationally. Yeah. And he wants to get the bus outfitted so that we can go from hemp farm to hemp farm with a seed press on the bus and then collect the hemp seed. That the farmers you know, marginal hemp seed that they're not going to use. Yeah. And squeeze that into oil, filter it, and fuel our bus. Nice. So we can go from we can go from a farm to a disaster, or from a farm to a restaurant. It won't matter because we can collect that seed oil and filter it and turn it into fuel right on the bus. Sweet. That dude. That is. Fantastic. It'll be awesome. So think when I was driving the first bus, we did about 20,000 miles on Greece. And we started the engine on diesel, the regular diesel thing. Yeah. But we only ran that fuel until the engine got the temperature. And that heated going heated the grease tank so once the grease tanks were at temperature i just switched to straight grease and the rest of the day i'm running on cooking so we shut down for the night switch the fuel suction and return to the diesel purge the system i'm ready to start transporting that diesel 
but only as long as it took. Yeah. So that twenty thousand miles ended up costing me about a hundred dollars in diesel. Nice. So when you can apply that to a diesel engine for a bus and transportation, or a diesel Dodge truck for running the cruise around to do work. And you can use the bus to refuel the truck. Then you got a fob that can roll in, self-contained, and be its own refiner, right? So what yeah. PR does, you know, they got a they got a PEX card, right? Yeah. They can go buy all the fuel they want. Yeah. Right. As long as they can find the fuel. That's the problem sometimes, when you go into areas yeah. that are as devastated as, uh, say, say New Orleans or St. Charles or yeah. You may not have you available. New York. New York. Yeah. They were lined up block and block and blocks for five gallons. It didn't matter if you were a volunteer organization or anybody off the street. The gas station would only give sell you five gallons. Five right. gallons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if your effort is 100 guys in 10 vehicles, guess what? You're only going to get five gallons per person that you put in that line. Yep. So your whole crew is standing in line <laughs> waiting to fill up that tank. Right? All day. All day. And meanwhile, there's the, the mission's not getting completed because you're waiting for fuel. Right. Otherwise, you, you know, my plan and what I did in New Orleans on a small scale was the truck would go do projects. But guys are working, so then the truck get grease. They collect grease, come back, get the guys, come back to the fob, spend the evening cleaning the grease up, turn that into fuel. The next day, we got fuel for the next day. Heck yeah. We didn't lose any time, right? And yeah. we didn't spend any money. There you go. And in, and in Katrina, it wasn't being rationed. You had to drive on 100 miles a day. Yeah. And it was $5 a gallon. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So, so my point, my point about this, and the point of the Veterans Green Bus project was to demonstrate sustainable solutions and disaster response using sustainable energy fuel. Yeah. We use solar power to power our satellite internet. We use biofuel to fuel our effort. We use those resources within the disaster to do that. We didn't go out for them. We just used. Them. That was long before there was. Rubicon, and then we demonstrated it within Team Rubicon while they were just starting up. But then they got all the worldwide attention and blew up big and got all the money from everybody they wanted to to continue getting big. Yep. But they never, never thought about sustainability in terms of putting, applying sustainable solutions to what they were doing because they didn't have to and there wasn't any time on your mission statement to stop and figure out how do we do this green their job is to get stuff done and get stuff done right yeah well I mean yeah that's important but uh, it's also important to have sustainability so you can keep doing that well yeah and that was the kind of point where I you know run this two truck thing since since Hurricane Sandy was it you know almost 10 years ago now is what we're doing in Detroit in the Applying the sustainable energy solution model to the disaster response in slow motion, right? Yep. What we're figuring out here, 
eventually could apply directly to Team Rubicon in their disaster response. But ultimately, it applies to what happens after Team Rubicon in the rebuilding. Yeah. Right? So if you can apply disaster, sustainable energy solutions in disaster response and rebuilding, then why get off of the sustainable solution model once the disaster is over? My point is that we use solar and biofuels to go in and do disaster response. We use solar and biofuels to rebuild after disaster response. But what do we rebuild after Katrina? Houses put to a grid that's dependent on energy coming from somewhere else. It took, they're using fuel now that they got to get from somewhere else to get to their job. They're back onto a same model that will get wiped out again another time a disaster comes and takes out their electrical grid yep. and wipes out their, their ability to fuel themselves. Yeah. So we're not solving anything by doing repeating the same mistake over and over again. We have to make some of the similar mistakes because there's no alternative until there's a viable plan yeah. to allow it. A scalable alternative. And that's what I think Detroit offers in the scale of its disaster and the slow motion of its, this, its of the response. This is the place to figure that out. Definitely. And I, I totally agree with you. It's when those problems arise, we're, we're just hooking back into the old problem. We're not, we're not solving anything. We're not giving ourselves new answers. We're just giving ourselves the same problem that it's going to be a vicious cycle and they're just going to keep going back to the same thing. And, you know, you know, like I, the mobile home park, right? Yeah. We go, we go down to Texas and what do we do after a tornado? We clean up a mobile home park, don't we? Yep. And what do we do the next year? We go back to the same goddamn mobile home park and clean up the next bunch of mobile homes. Right? And, and, yeah. It, and, makes, it, it makes the mobile home industry a lot of money, but it keeps everybody in a mobile home that's a death trap. Exactly. They are. I mean, so, what, I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen one burn down. They, they go up pretty quick. <laughs> they don't last long in a tornado either. No, they don't. They're, they're a death trap. Now, if you reapplied. You know, military tactics, real military tactics to what we were doing in terms of, you know, ER's spin up, it goes in, puts out the fire, and it leaves. But if we applied military tactics in a permanent kind of tactic way, we would bring in shipping containers instead of mobile home. We'd build houses out of shipping containers, not, not aluminum. Yeah. And then, We've tied the shipping container with something that doesn't look like a shipping container anymore. And now it looks just like a mobile home. Right? But it's bulletproof. It's treeproof. And it's 200 mile an hour windproof. Yep. You answer that to the slab on the ground, it's a storm shelter, not a death trap. Yep. And guess what? I bet you it costs less to build for the shipping container than it does to build a new mobile home. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> so why are we keep paying uh, uh, insurance dollars to build 
death traps when we should be changing the building code to use shipping containers instead of disposable paper bubble home parts. Well, that, uh, if we did... put better, but, you know, a lot of these vets are living in mobile home parks, right? Yeah. I knew a guy that uh, he, in Dayton, the tornado that came through Dayton a couple years ago, tore up his house and he just got it fixed uh, in December, November, December, and he just got his car fixed November, December. The dude is, he's a disabled vet. He's got a service dog. Yet, you know, it took almost over a year to fix his house. Yeah. And, you know, they probably didn't, you know, hey, let's um, let's redo this home so the same thing doesn't happen again. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. They didn't. No. They just probably just put the put a bandaid on it and said you're good to go. Well, that's what they do with everything. Look at Detroit. You know, they built out Detroit for the the auto industry and the well, actually the war industry and then the auto industry after that. Yep. Well, the the largest population. Detroit was 1950 at 1.85 million. We're at 650,000. We're still dropping in population. Yeah. The houses that were built 60, 70 years ago weren't intended to be around now, but they still are. <laughs> yeah. They were just thrown together to put factory workers in. Well, it's no different than a mobile home park. And rebuilding, we shouldn't be building to fix anymore when they don't last no and the carbon footprint of building with sticks and the labor it takes to build with sticks we it's just not affordable for the retired veteran to build out of sticks no it's sustainable to live in if you want an enjoyable retirement in a storm prone area so yeah i'm done building with sticks it's shipping containers and and hempcrete yeah that's the other key component to this is the whole you know once you're in a shipping container great you're in a metal box put a metal box in texas and throw a little sunshine on it you probably don't want to stick around inside that metal box too long heck no but out, if you insulated the snow out of that thing from the outside of the building the hemp plant mixed with lime water which turns into a concrete but with a lot of aircraft not structural but it becomes to the point where you could have a stucco-looking southwest hacienda-type house that's wrapped in what appears to be stucco, but it's a foot thick of hempcrete, and on the inside is your metal frame shipping container. Yeah. So now you don't even you can't even tell it what it was made out of originally, but it's got a foot thick wall to prevent the heat from getting inside. Or the cold from getting inside. Yeah. So whether it's Texas, Corpus Christi, 110 degrees, right? There's maybe 20 degrees in the coldest day in the winter. Or it's Detroit, where it's 100 degrees or zero, <laughs> right? Yeah. You got the different ends of the, of the thermal spectrum. The same house applies, right? The shipping container wrapped in hempcrete is viable in Detroit as it is in Texas. Yep. For the same reason, thermal value. You're, if you can keep 
the interior of the house a constant. Regardless of the exterior temperature, you're good. And the same insulation works whether it's hot or cold. So the same model should work anyway. It's just how thick a temperature you need to put to address the thermal requirements. Yeah, yeah, dude, that. That. And you can grow it on your own property. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> it's not like we got to, yeah, we don't have to go pound it out of the ground in a mine, right? Gravel. Yeah. That's what concrete is. Cement. We don't have to do any of that stuff. We don't have to run all that diesel to go pound stones into smaller stones and then ship them off to a factory to turn it into dust and then put it into a bag and then ship it to another factory to turn it into cement and then put it into a big truck and drive it across town to deliver it, a farmer can literally grow hemp and lye and water and build his farm. Yeah. And driveway. Insulated building. Fuel is farm. Fuel is tractor. All from one place. All from all from something he grew. Yep. And and he ultimately he scaled that up. You know, concrete being the biggest carbon uh, emitter, second only to U.S. fuel consumption, and well, third to U.S. fuel consumption and worldwide fuel consumption are the two things that are ahead of concrete in terms of emitting carbon into the air. Yeah. So if we took all the concrete and stopped pounding stones and made hempcrete, it would sequester more carbon than it puts out. So it becomes a carbon uh, negative program instead of carbon emitting. So ultimately, it's not growing trees that's going to fix the, the environment. It's going to be growing hemp twice a year. And turning that into concrete and putting that into the ground. Heck yeah. Hemp and hemp is hemp would be a definite lifesaver and uh doesn't get it doesn't nearly get uh the attention that it needs. Well it's because it's confused with marijuana and marijuana's got the stigma on it still because of the federal government. Yeah. That's about to change. In the next six months. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Once the federal government legalizes or decriminalizes, however they want to put it, marijuana, then all this crap about its uh, danger will be met with the reality of actual science and medicine and studies uh, to prove. So that's just propaganda from 80 years ago to make it illegal in the first place. Yep, and you know, I think I see uh, the people where the states in where like Michigan and at least Ohio where it's medicinally legal, that people are starting to figure out that this stuff's more helpful than it is harmful than it ever was harmful. Um, wow, I can't. I'm the living example of the. The difference between pharmacological solutions and natural herbal remedies. 
I grew up in Northern California. I was born in Canada, but I grew up in Humboldt County, California. Yeah. Right? The epicenter of marijuana production since there was marijuana production. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up trimming buds in high school. Nice. Right? All I right. I paid for my first car. Yeah, there you go. Right? I was in Gardnerville, California, trimming buds with a bunch of Vietnam veterans. Before I became a veteran, before I even graduated high school, I was trimming weed. That was the job. It's like, it's like uh, uh, um, bootlegging in the South. Yeah. Because the only work around, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I learned how to grow weed, and, and, and I smoked weed in high school, and I learned from that from Vietnam. Then I joined the military, and the military at the time had a don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you didn't smoke on the, while you were on duty, nobody cared. Yep. And when you were off the scene, that means when you're not on watch, it was after hours, nobody cared. Yep. And I was lucky enough to get stationed in Hawaii when I signed up. <laughs> so <laughs> I had even better weed in, in Pearl Harbor than I had in Humble Tank. So my first two years in the Navy was don't ask, don't tell. And then they brought in the zero tolerance policy, and then I couldn't smoke weed in. Yeah. All right. So that didn't last too long, but I made it through my whole Navy career without getting dead. But I can't maintain my sanity by staying stoned between uh, watches. Yeah. And that that was true in the Persian Gulf, in the Straits of Hormuz, babysitting oil tankers for six months. We had all the hash we needed coming straight out of Bahrain. Yep. Right. So, uh, I stayed mellow the whole time. I had my shit together. I wasn't losing it. I wasn't drinking, right? Yep. And, but saw a lot of crazy shit, not more shit. My shit was all the bullshit of maybe shit yeah. I saw. But um, I saw a lot of shit and got out and stressed out and lost my marriage and Start, you know, I was drinking through the Navy like every sailor would. And it got me into a lot of trouble. And being out of the Navy, they had the piss test and I couldn't do surgery and smoke weed. So the alcohol was my go-to. Decompress. All I had was alcohol. I couldn't couldn't do weed because I had surgery and a piss test. That's it. The wing would affect the surgery. The piss test would affect my job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go to work stoned. I'd get stoned after work. Yeah. Right? Next day, like, you know, bottle the throttle. Same, same rule applied. From yeah. Barn rips to, to, to wood chips or stitches. Eight hours. Yeah. Right? So... I couldn't medicate while I was doing my surgery using medical marijuana. That's ridiculous. And and years of, of doing trauma surgery put me into a mental state that I was an alcoholic doing surgery. That's that, fucking stupid. It is. It absolutely is. And it like in the VA, the VA is like, well, you know, if the the veteran can literally say, Hey, 
uh, I can smoke some weed and my pain will be gone instantly. No, you can't do that or you're going to lose your, 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 your benefits. Uh, but here's this, here's this, this narcotic that'll do the same thing for you, but it'll also get you hooked. So you have to keep going back to us and we keep getting money for giving it to you. And when you can just go down the street and well, get some they're marijuana. They get the same money whether they give it to you or not. Yeah. The pill industry gets paid every time you show up, though. Yep. <laughs> and they like to give you a lot of pills. That's very true. Yeah. I I used to go to the VA, and the VA is still my primary care, but I don't go there anymore because I'm just never getting sick because I'm healthy. And um, for one, if I'm having a headache or any sort of anxiety issues, I'm smoking weed. I'm smoking weed. I'm not going to the VA yeah. getting pills because every time I go there, my doctor said, well, you got a cough or here's a pill. Um, you, you're, you're having nightmares or here's a pill. Here's some Ambien so you can fall asleep. Dude, I don't, I, I drove in my sleep on Ambien. I've never done that with weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I got out in 88 and then I did another seven years of surgery after that, and then uh, uh, marriage fell apart because of the, all the structures. And I was pretty much burned out of doing surgery full-time anyway. Yeah. So I got out of that industry, and and I went you know, to the VA, and they uh, recommended all those freaking pills. And in 96, I signed up. For my medical marijuana card in California. As soon as it came legal, I signed up. Got my medical marijuana card. I've not been back to the VA since. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I had a tooth pull. I did go back for a tooth pull. Gotcha. But I haven't been back to the VA since. I stopped drinking as a habit. Now I only drink on uh, on beer night at the pub with the boys in TR. Yeah. So it takes a disaster to get a beer in me. <laughs> I stopped drinking completely about uh, four years ago. Uh, I, obviously, like my doctors down in Texas for my brain told me, hey, all the grain, the sugar, and the alcohol is inflaming the part of your brain that's trying to heal. Yep. So cut back. Yep. I'm like, well, I really yep. wasn't drinking that much in the first place, so I just stopped. And before that, I kind of was an alcoholic. Like, I, it was pretty, pretty bad, so... Um, I think in my life I did my fair share of drinking and the Navy kind of helped that out a little bit. So I just stopped and now it's like, hey, you know, if I need something where I do want an altered state, well, I don't want to call it an altered state of mind, but where I want to relax, I'm not going to drink a beer. I'm going to go smoke a joint or smoke a bowl or something. Yeah, I got off the, the, the antidepressants and I had a motorcycle wreck in 92 that really put an end to my medical and surgical career. I was still doing plastic surgery, but I wasn't doing trauma anymore because yeah. of my neck injury. Yeah. But the, it started getting worse and worse. So they started uh, wanting to give me the muscle relaxers and the Valium, and then put that on top of the antidepressant. You just go into this downward spiral of... of, of Turning into a pile of you know, mush. Yeah. Not you anymore. No, it's the truth. Like I, after my second surgery, and I was on 
valiums and oxycodones. And uh, I, after my surgery, I took a trip out west. And, uh, you know, I, I hung out with some dudes that had some peyote. And I told them, hey, I'm on all these drugs. And they're like, why don't you try some peyote, man? And uh, smoked some of that and went on a nice trip. And, uh, you know, that's a long story. But uh, long story short, I haven't taken any painkillers for a very long time. Mainly, one, because of weed. Two, because I know how to manage it. And three, I just don't want to take them. They don't. They don't work. Yeah, it don't work at all. They mask everything. They don't fix anything. That's that's the thing. They mask you, too. It's not just the symptoms. They they, they destroy what you are. Yeah, you got to fix the problem. And that is one thing with with like Western medicine that it is, hey, let's just put a Band-Aid on us. Let's put a mask on your symptoms and, uh, you know, go from there. Like the whole... it's 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 chemical or it's science versus uh, I mean they're into it to figure it out how to do it chemically as opposed to how to do it naturally. Yeah. And the fact that laws and paranoia and competition prevent the truth from getting out. Yeah. Well, like the whole COVID vaccine. That's I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's where we're at right now. Is the nexus between lost fear and and profit. Yep, and that's <laughs> that's you know the government using fear, uh, basically to. I mean, if you turn on the news, it's all gloom and doom, and you know, hey, maybe in some cities like Los Angeles where it's a hot zone. But I tell you what, if I go down to the hospitals here in Cincinnati. They're not crowded. They're not. There's no trucks. They're, I mean, the morgues aren't packed. Uh, you know, for majority, everybody's just trying to stay healthy here. Yeah, there is your cases, and there is your deaths. But I mean, the survivability is what ninety nine percent. If you're healthy, yeah, true. But you got to take that into scale. Yeah, true. So that's how you end up with 450,000 dead in one year. Yeah. The scale. So uh, 1% of 330 million people is still 3.3 million people. Yeah. So we're at 450,000 with another 30 million people. Yeah. 300 million people left to vaccinate. Yeah. Bringing back my old Navy medical corpsman training. And, and epidemiology and virology training, all that tells me is unless you get vaccinations into everybody in the next six months, you're still going to lose a million people. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knows who that million people are or where they're coming from. So it's going to peak and valley all over the place until they get a noose around all of it. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the media being what it is, not to want to want to scare everybody, but they don't want to panic them. That's true, right? Yeah, right. So the scare tactics avoids the panic when the truth is what's really told right from the start. Yeah, and the hard fucking cold truth of it is, if everybody doesn't get a vaccination, three point three million people are going to die. There's no way around that. Yeah. 
And that's it's a matter of how long you don't get to be immune forever after your vaccination or being sick. So you can get sick and you can get sick again. Yep. So, you know, this, this, this virus is here with us just like the common flu, just like AIDS. It's it's not going anywhere. It's forever. Yep. It's not going anywhere until we either completely eradicate it or we get our flu shot every year and cross our fingers that we're not Accumulative effects of yeah. This is a virus. It's no different than AIDS. They're all viruses. They're all proteins, and they all have a way of killing you. Just a matter of how long it takes. Yep. So, yeah. But all the other studies say if you smoke weed, you might not get infected because your lungs are covered with a. Uh, a tar coating that prevents the, the protein molecule from attaching to your lung in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> how ironic that the smokers are going to outlist all the non-smokers. <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. Oh, man. I might die of cancer, but I ain't going to die of the flu. <laughs> well, I've already beat that. I've already beat cancer twice, so hopefully I'm good. <laughs> yeah. No, literally, with marijuana being an anti-carcinogen to begin with, you know, not just smoking it, but eating it as a vegetable. Yeah. They have the entire plant instead of just the the smoke. And I think there's all kinds of uh, ailments that we've been um, suffering from in the last European civilization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we don't necessarily have to, you know. The Tibetans have been using marijuana for uh, forty thousand years before they were Tibetan. They were, you know, first out of the cave. They were cultivating marijuana. Yep. And look at how mellow Tibetans are. <laughs> for sure. As a people. Yeah. As a people. Yeah. Genetically, as a people. They're freaking mellow. <laughs> they couldn't be kinder. They couldn't be more whatever, happy, stable, sustainable. If everybody just stayed out of their freaking way, they'd be fine for the next 40,000 years. Yeah, that's for, that's, yeah. Well, we're about an hour. We had, we've done about an hour so far. Well, where do you want to take it? Yeah. What's 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 the call to action? What's the to do? I don't know, man. The subject we got all over the place. How do we wrap this in a bow? It's a good question. That we did uh, we did an hour, and to to all wrap that up is so it's a lot to wrap up. So I'm trying to I'm gonna well, I gotta. My plan is this. My plan is get on the bus, roll a joint. <laughs> I'll be in California, so that'll be all right. Yeah. Smoke that joint, get on the internet, and set up a service project in a national park, and then invite other vets to join me to go clean up, do some trail work, whatever, in the national park, enjoy some outdoors, smoke another joint, and uh, talk about doing shit sustainably 
and encouraging those vets to sign up, get qualified to be Team Rubicon deployable so they can get on my bus and roll when the shit hits the fan. Heck yeah, man. That's my plan. Sounds good to me. And my plan is to uh, get it out to more people so they hear all about it. All right. Uh, VeteransGreenVillages.com. That's my website. All right, cool. Yeah, man, I love VeteranGreenVillages.com. It's plural. Veterans Green Villages. So plural on the veterans, plural on the villages. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I want... I want to duplicate what I'm doing here in Detroit everywhere. Like Johnny Appleseed. Go around the country, drop little green villages everywhere with vets doing green shit. Heck yeah, man. Plant that seed. All right, dude. Well, that's good, man. I'm going to... It was good talking to you, my friend. Yeah, dude. Uh, All righty. All right, man. We will uh, catch you on the flip side, brother. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining in today and listening to myself and my guest, Gordon. Uh, Man, I don't know about you, but my brain is overloaded with everything that he had to say today. That was some awesome stuff. (sighs) All right, guys. Once again, uh, thanks for tuning into my podcast. Thanks for tuning into Real Joy Boats podcast. You know, uh, like I said earlier, I'm a two time brain cancer survivor, I'm a combat veteran. And I've survived alcoholism, depression, suicide, and beat my demons where they live. And I'm here to help you own up, as I did. So if you face any adversity in your life, you can win. That's what I'm here for, folks. All right. And one last thing, again, this podcast has been brought to you by the Bonehead Bone Broth Company. Uh, Guys, I'm sitting uh, 10 yards from my stove right now for a 48 hour batch of bone broth that's about to come off the stove about to get filtered and packaged isn't that awesome man you guys should be here to smell the goodness i'm telling you all right folks once again so bonehead bone broth find us on facebook all right folks thanks for tuning in to the real joey boats podcast once again It was wonderful talking with y'all. Thanks for inviting me into your homes. And uh, I'll catch you on the flip side. Much love.